Good evening. Something about the front row, never. Anyway, glad you guys are here. We're continuing through John's Gospel. So if you open to chapter 2, we're going to pick up verse 13 where we left off. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Okay, like we did last week, I'd like to start off by first asking you if you have any questions in these verses here. Any things that stand out to you that you want to discuss? His anger? Okay. What specifically are you wanting to know? Is it okay to get angry? Okay, good question. What else stands out to you guys in this chapter? Questions you have or or things that you'd want to know more about? Nothing? Okay. It's a light week. Well, go ahead. You mean before the crucifixion that he was going to raise again for the dead? Okay. No, they didn't. I mean, I guess there, there, that's that. Um, No, they didn't. They were, you know, they remembered what he had said before he was crucified and then it came back to him, but they thought he was dead. And so they had ideas, but it, it never registered. And that would be a hard thing to register. Yeah, I'll be alive again in three days. You know, that, if you told me that, I wouldn't wait up, you know, kind of a thing. Yes. Okay, so why was he angry? Why was he angry? Was it because of the Passover? Yes, Eileen. It is the same word used, and it doesn't mean a body. It actually means a building. Interesting. We'll talk about that, why the word... I think that question is interesting. Why would they ask him for a sign instead of, you know, 
why are you doing this? It's like, what sign do you show us? And so they they ask him that question instead of, hey, what are you doing? That, that would be my question, okay? We don't know. <laughs> it, you, take your pick, yeah. It might have been raising people up. It might have been blind, lame, all those things. Um, something that's interesting to start off as we kind of delve into this a little backstory. First of all, this episode appears in all the Gospels. However, in the other three Gospels, it takes place at the end of Jesus' ministry. Here, John puts it at the beginning. And what's important to understand about that is not the chronology, but the purpose. Remember, John is going to use miracles that Jesus did and even this event that Jesus did to bring about truths of him being the Messiah, him being someone who we could put faith in. And so don't get caught up in chronology in some of these things because John's intention wasn't when it happened, it was that it happened. And he is spelling it out for a specific reason, and that is, again, a declaration. He said, after they remembered these things, remember in verse 22, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And so John is looking back out of all the things that Jesus has done and said, and he is saying, oh, there was this, there was this, and he's putting them down led by the Spirit of God in a way that is going to help us understand something. But what's important isn't when it happened, it's that it happened and what was the intention. And so it's important to understand that because that gives a little clarification to some of the miracles that took place or events. There are some people that have such a problem with this, and and I've thought this at times too, that there must have been two cleansings of the temple. Must have been one at the beginning and then one later on. But it really doesn't make sense. If he did it once, the next time they'd be ready for him. Okay, they'd get all, hide the coins, Jesus is here. You know what I mean? It would be like, okay, here he comes again. And so most likely, and I believe, there was only one time that he cleansed the temple. But John is writing this for a specific reason, and we're going to get into exactly what that reason was. And the time of the Passover, this is probably the middle of April, and It was mandatory for every male adult within 15 miles to attend. Mandatory. And those who were even further out would still attend because this was a big deal. It was one of their holy days. It was a big festivities. And so people from all around would fill Jerusalem and the place is crowded. John's gospel takes place a lot in Jerusalem where the other Gospels take place or show about things that happen in Galilee and regions around Jerusalem. And so it's not that he didn't come to Jerusalem often, it's just they only account or mostly account for the events that took place outside, and John accounts for mostly what takes place inside. And so it's a big holiday, it's a big festivities, a lot of people are there. The temple court, that he's speaking of is the outer court. The outer court is where everyone could come. 
the Gentiles, women, everyone. As you move closer to the holiest of holies, the the central part of the temple where only the high priest could go in once a year, we see that there starts to be this kind of seclusion where one person can go, then the priest can go, and then the men and men and women and the Gentiles. And so this outer court is really called the court of the Gentiles. And so this is where everyone could come and be a part of this worship. They had quite a system going. And many of you already know this. The, The money exchange rate was exorbitant. If you wanted to come and worship and you wanted to buy something, whether it was an offering dove or or to give even to the temple, you had to use a shekel. It was the Hebrew coin. And so if you had something else, you had to exchange it so that you could worship with the true coins. And the exchange rate was like four times as much. And so I remember going to Europe and giving them $200 and them giving me 100 pounds back. And it hurt. Okay? It was just like, no, no. You know, I just felt like I lost $100 just by exchanging money. So imagine even four times what would happen and how you would feel. Not only that is if you would bring your own animal to offer and they would look at it and say, I'm sorry, there's a blemish here. Look at over here. See this dark spot. We can't allow this animal to be sacrificed. It's not good enough. Here, you can buy one of ours. They're, you know, pre-approved sacrificial animals and they would cost more. And so this was a racket. I had read in... uh, forgetting which commentary it was, that said that in a, a year, the temple would make, I think it was $750,000, $750,000 in one year. Now, this commentary was a few years old, so it was a lot of money. And so this was a big source of income, the temple. And that's what's taking place. And it's taking place in this outer court, the place where the Gentiles are supposed to come in and supposed to worship. Imagine coming from whatever country you're a part of, whatever, you know, if you were a Roman and you believed in the God of the Hebrews and you came to worship and and you come in there to, to have a time where you can pray and communicate to God and there's all these animals, you know, making whatever animal noise they should make, you know, if it's, uh, you know, lamb, it's making lamb noises. If it's dove, it's making cooing noises. And so all these noises are going on and you're here to try and have this time of prayer and dedication to God. Imagine how difficult that would be. You know, it's one thing when we have babies here and cry. I've had people say, well, you know, the babies are, are, are you know, loud. And I go, yeah, imagine cows. You know, it's much better. <laughs> and so there's a lot of commotion. This place really is set up now to make money. It's not set up so that people can come 
and worship God. And that's one of the things that is important. We're going to go to two passages. First uh, Kings chapter 8 is the first one. And I've touched on this a number of times. Starting at verse 41, Solomon is dedicating the first temple. That temple is now being replaced with Herod's temple. We'll talk about that a little bit more. And in verse 41, Solomon says, as for the foreigner, this would be in Jesus' time, the Roman or the Grecian or whoever they were, wherever they were from, the foreigner who wasn't a Hebrew. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people, Israel." and may know that this house I have built bears your name. And so we see that Solomon in his dedication is saying, Lord, when the foreigner comes and they pray to you, answer them so that they know you're real. And so what Solomon is really saying is, there's a difference, God, between you and all these other gods. You actually do answer prayer. You actually do hear and do the miraculous. And so when they pray to you, answer them and do whatever it is they ask. Turn with me to Isaiah 56, verse 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Mark's gospel includes this all nations. And so this event in Mark's gospel, you have you've taken my house, it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. And so... Jesus is really quoting this passage in Isaiah. He's connecting it to all nations. He's connecting it to this temple is supposed to be a gateway for all nations to come and connect to God. Now, I want you to think of this idea of house of prayer as not just a place where people come and say a prayer. I want you to think of prayer as a conversation that takes place between us and God. It's communication. It's relational. It's engaged. It's dynamic. It's alive. So when it becomes a prayer, I, I prayed and you heard me. You see, it's not just I pray. It is I pray and you answer. It's going both ways. And so it's not that they just come and say prayers. It's that they come and actually connect to the living God. And so this temple was supposed to be, even in Solomon's dedication, a place where all the world could come 
talk to God, connect with the living God, and develop now a relationship with God, just like God has established with Abraham, just like God had established with his people. Now this was how he could establish this relationship to all people. But instead, this outer court was now a place where they made money. So the foreigner comes to try and have this connection to God, and instead he gets ripped off. There's animals all over the place. There's money being exchanged. It's noisy, and his ability to connect with God is nil because it's not what it was supposed to be. Instead, it's been all about the money, all about the exchange, all about these things that he's trying, that they are trying to do instead of what God originally intended it to be. And so, when Jesus steps in and he sees this, think now of this story. What is this supposed to be? And what is it now? And why is Jesus angry? Jesus is angry because they have made an obstacle between people and God. What was supposed to be a gateway is now a wall that is blocking people from getting to God instead of allowing them access to God. And so I don't remember the context when I said when we're angry, we're most unlike God, but I imagine it was an anger that was out of control. Jesus is not out of control here. And we know he's not out of control because he actually says, let me get back over there. When it comes to the doves that are in the cages, he doesn't throw them over. He tells them to get them out of here. So he's not just, boom, there goes the cages with the doves in them. Poor doves are all getting slammed against the cages. You know, it, it didn't happen like that. I mean, he was in control of what was going on. He just wanted to make a statement, and it was a powerful statement. And so when he asked them, those who sold the doves in verse 16, he said, get these out of here. And then, so the tables he turned over, but the animals, he didn't just throw them out. He said, get these out of here, and he had them move out. So it seems like there's some control. He's not just losing it. But what he was angry about is the people hindering God. And so even Paul says, be angry and sin not. Let me ask you this. Is anger spiritual? I hear all kinds of murmuring, but I don't see any. No one's wanting to step out and say yes or no. Okay, it can be. Okay, so there can be a righteous anger. Anger can be a spiritual act. We tend, or maybe I tend, to think of things that are spiritual in a certain light. You go to church, that's spiritual. You read your Bible, that's spiritual. You, you sing songs of worship, that's spiritual. And then there's other things that we don't associate as spiritual. You eat, 
That's not spiritual. That's your flesh. You make love to your wife. That's not spiritual. How can it be? It's sex. You go to work. Are those things not spiritual? How do you determine what is spiritual and what is not? Any thoughts? Yes, Lo? Has to do with their heart. Okay. Any other thoughts? What makes something spiritual? Yes. If you pray before. <laughs> Good. This dessert that Linda made is now spiritual because I prayed over it. <laughs> Use it for communion and it becomes spiritual. There you go. What makes something spiritual is connected to the spirit, connected to God. When something is connected to God, it becomes spiritual. When things are separated from God, then they lose that dynamic of spirituality. And so you have something like anger. When anger is separated from the intentions of God, it it can become destructive. It can become abusive. It separates from who God is, his character, and so it stops becoming spiritual. When it is connected to God's character, then it's connected to something that's spiritual. So if someone goes in and, you know, fights to save a person who's being beaten or abused, it can become a spiritual act. Why? Because God's character would help those kids or that situation. You know, making love is a spiritual thing if it's connected to the character of God and the things that God has prescribed. If you think, well, good, Sam said sex is spiritual, so I'm going to go get a prostitute and it'll it'll be spiritual. Well, no, you're you're separating it from the character and will of God, and so now it's stopping that connection to what is spiritual. And so spiritual isn't certain things. Spiritual is connected to the character of God, which should be connected to our hearts and our intentions. And so really, everything could be spiritual. C.S. Lewis said that all our vices are good things that have gone wrong. That's a quote, misquote, or paraphrase. Something along those, all the things that are vices are usually things, intentions that God meant for good that have gone astray. And so things like anger, things like eating, things like, I mean, there's so many things that are good and could be spiritual. I mean, how many scriptures talk about eating and feasting and partaking together? I mean, food is a spiritual thing. I've experienced it. I've I've eaten food and seen God. I mean, it's just like, yes, but it wasn't the fair food. I, I didn't, I didn't see him there. Um, God has created us, and so everything that we can experience can actually be spiritual. So going to work, going to school can be spiritual. Interaction with friends is, can be spiritual. Um, 
you know, eating can be spiritual. All, all these things can connect to God and be a spiritual act. So it's not just when you come here. It's not just if you go to church. It's not just if you read the Bible. You can watch a movie and have a spiritual encounter, even if it wasn't a, quote, Christian movie. Have you guys ever watched a movie and it's just moved you? And you're just like in tears and you're just like feeling passion about something. You might have a spiritual experience watching Braveheart. Freedom! Love that movie. How can you not be moved watching that movie? But it wasn't, you know, a Christian movie. There was, you know, this in that movie and there was that in that movie. There are certain things that can still be spiritual even though... They're not what we think of as spiritual acts. Now, what does this make possible? This makes possible you moving forward the things that are actually connected to God in every arena of your life. So instead of, well, we need to get so-and-so to church, no, you can take the spirit to so-and-so. You can move wherever God is moving and it be spiritual. And so people can encounter God in some of the strangest places because the spirit is able to work in every area that connects to life. It just matters if we are connecting to God and his character in those places. Does that make sense? So anger can be a spiritual thing. There are reasons to get angry. There are good reasons to be angry. And it's not wrong, but you need to do it connected to the character of God. The reason Jesus was angry, again, was because this was supposed to be the gateway for the world to come and find out who God was. Instead, it was a gateway for them to make money. I wonder how much that still is taking place in the Christian arena today. I wonder how many churches are gateways for people to make money. How many that's the agenda? I mean, there are some that seem obvious, the charlatans, you know, that go town to town doing miracles and, and ripping people off, you know, because the people really don't have the miracles happen, and you find out that there's all these things going on. But I wonder even more than that, how many people think of it as a way to make a living? Church now becomes a way to make a living, and so this is spiritual but really, it's my job now, too. And that's the purpose of it, is to make a living. Again, I don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm not the one who, who judges. But that's something we need to be aware of. So it doesn't matter what it says on the building. It doesn't matter what the person is saying. It matters if it's connected to the heart and character of God, whether it's spiritual or not. You see, there, there's... There's no loophole, really, in this life with God. The law, as intricate as it was, they found ways to manipulate it for their own good. 
And by doing the things that they did, they actually hindered the work of God. And one of the things that Jesus is actually doing here is he's connecting this need for people to recognize that the sacrifice that was taking place from the animals, it really is not enough. I mean, he is going to be echoing the chorus of all the prophetic voices proclaiming that animal sacrifices could never put men right with God, that the law could never quite bridge that gap. That's why Jesus is here. I'm going to read a few passages. You can mark them down if you want to turn to them. Quickly, you can. Isaiah chapter 1. Verses 11 to 17, it says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbath, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts, and your appointed festivals. I hate with all my being. Strong words, right? They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. So Isaiah is making the statement, all your rituals mean nothing if they are coming from a life detached from me. Jeremiah 7, 21 to 23, it says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought you, your ancestors, out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, obey me, and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. In Hosea chapter 8, verse 13, though they offer sacrifices as gifts to me, and though they eat the meat, the Lord is not pleased with them. Now he will remember their wickedness and punish their sins. They will return to Egypt. Last one is Psalm 51, 16. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. And so Jesus is coming and he is going to change this. This shortcoming, you know, the sacrifice was supposed to point to something, but they've missed it. They've missed it altogether. And so now Jesus is going to do away with the sacrifice. He is literally going to destroy the temple, which comes back to the word, the building. But it's also a metaphor, as he says, to his own body. 
And so there is a lot going on here. And this is why John is bringing this here at the beginning, because once again, we saw that Jesus was the Messiah. He's proclaiming himself to be that here in this statement. As he comes into the temple, he is going to do away with the sacrifice. He is going to destroy what the temple was and what it is supposed to now be. And so John is making that clear at the beginning, and this is why he is doing those things, that there would be the clarity of what is taking place here and how Jesus is going to bring in this new covenant. And so this is why he is angry. This is what is supposed to be happening and is not happening. And so Jesus is now overturning things. And when the Jews say to him, what sign? The reason they're asking for a sign is because to do something like this, you need to give evidence that you are a person of authority. What authority do you have to do this? That's what it means by what sign. It's not like, okay, well, give us a sign and we'll believe you. It's like, what authority do you have? Because if you are a person of authority, there is going to be some sign, some significance that you show that enables you to have this kind of voice in the situation. And so that's why they're asking for a sign. And the disciples remember, after all this, it was... The zeal of your house will consume me. Psalm 69, verse 9. God is establishing something new. The zeal of your house will consume me. The the purpose of what you intended is my purpose. I am driven to this. In Malachi chapter 3, Verse 1 through 4, it says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them as gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. You see, now... He's requiring offerings of righteousness. Now he's requiring offerings of life. And so he's getting rid of this because this is being done away with. You have done this and it's worthless now. And what I require of you is deeds done in righteousness. And you've missed the boat. You thought by... Following these steps of the law, you could develop the relationship with God, and it isn't so. Your obedience to the letter of the law, you've missed the purpose, the intent of the law. When I was applying for the Glendale Police Department just yesterday, uh, no, this is... A long time ago, a friend of mine was working there, uh, 
and he was pretty high up in, in Vice, and he was telling me, you know, you're going to have this oral review, and you've got to talk to them, and they're going to ask you these kinds of questions, like, you know, if you pull a car over that just ran a stop sign, and you find out that it's your mom, will you give her a ticket? You know, they're going to give you those kinds of questions because they want to see how you're going to respond to that. And the purpose of that is to see if you're going to be honest or not. Because most people wouldn't give their mom a ticket. And so, as they, they, sure enough, they asked me that question. You know, they said, so if you, you know, saw this car run a red light and you found out it was your mom, would you give her a ticket? And I said, no way. She's the babysitter. Without her, we got no babysitter. You know, and I remember the guy smiling and, you know, you see, there was an intention. The law isn't meant, you know, for every person who runs a stop line to make sure that they never do that again. The law is intent to keep civility in our society. And then if it gets too rigid, then we got problems, right? Then we, well, anyway, that's a whole other topic. But the idea is there's an intention behind it. Well, they were missing the intention behind it. And Jesus is coming to bring it back. And so as he's doing this, he's causing a stir. They want a sign. And he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Now, this temple was actually Herod's temple that was being built even as they were speaking. Solomon's temple had been destroyed and had a smaller temple. And then Herod, who wasn't in good standings with the Jewish people, wanted to get into good standings. He, he was an Edomite, and so he was considered an outsider, although he was Jewish as well. And so what they, he said is, I'll build you a temple, but he had to build it around their old temple. And Josephus writes that it took 18 thousand men a year to build this temple imagine that for 46 years and then it was going to be another 20 years after this time before it was completed so it took 66 years to build this temple and then six years after it was built it was destroyed by rome crazy huh and so This temple was something that they were like, this is a monumental task. You're going to destroy this temple. And remember when they were accusing Jesus, what did they accuse him of? He said he was going to destroy the temple. And the reason they said that is because he said that. But John, looking back, said he meant something different. But even though he meant something different, he actually destroyed what the temple was for and brought in something new. Your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit if you belong to Christ. So where do you worship God? You don't go to temple. You are the temple. Your life is supposed to be that of worship. And so, you see, he's destroying the things that they were holding on to that actually kept them from connecting to the intentions that the law was there for. 
He, he didn't come to get rid of the law. He came to fulfill it. It was their interpretations of the law that made it useless, that made it void. And so he says three days and I'll raise it up. And they remembered he was speaking to the temple of his body after he was raised from the dead. His disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture. I I think that's interesting because they say one scripture. It's not all the scriptures. They believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Anyone have an idea what the scripture is? I believe it's Psalm 1610. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Peter quotes this scripture at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Paul also quotes this in Antioch in Acts chapter 13. And so this scripture was the one that talks about from Psalm 16, Jesus not seeing decay. He will not allow that to take place. So I believe that was the scripture in the words that they were spoken of. And now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. We don't know the signs that he was doing, but it was most likely the miracles that we know that he did. Healing, feeding thousands, okay? Those types of things that cause people to see him. We see in the other gospel so many times when he would do these miracles and the people would try and rally around him and he would separate himself from them. Now he's out in the public, but he still is not entrusting himself to the people. I think the interesting question here is why wouldn't he entrust himself to them? What does it mean for he knew all people? What do you think that means in verse 24? The evil in us. Explain, what does it mean, the evil in us? That's so broad. I just picture horns and pitchforks. And so let's put ourselves in a, a situation where we are there and Jesus is doing miracles, okay? And what would you want or what would take place that Jesus wouldn't trust you? You understand what I'm saying? It's like, what would make it happen, Alex? So they want to use his money. Right, so they want to use him for themselves, basically. Okay, they want to use Jesus to accomplish the things that they want or to make their lives better. And he's not trusting people because of that. I think that's a good thing to look at still. Am I using Jesus to try and get what I want? Can I get Jesus to back my agenda? Whatever that agenda is. Can I work it so that now Jesus supports me and now I can get the voice of Jesus behind what it is I want to do? And now I'm using him for my own purposes. How many people maybe still do that? I I want this and I can use now 
Jesus to get what I want. How many people do that politically? And so what's happening? Same thing. Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. And so he didn't need people to support what he was doing. He was self-sufficient. We do need support. We do need help. We need to be able to connect to help. I think it's important to recognize in, in this passage of the cleansing of the temple, not only was Jesus rebuking them in a way that was clear and loud for what they were doing, making money instead of leading people to a place where they could connect to God, where they could develop lives of prayer, but he is also making awareness to the fact that you are so far from the intention that God had that it's going to be destroyed. And I believe that John is going to springboard off of this into his further ministry. I think that's why John put it at the beginning, is because this is a place where we could see that Jesus came to fulfill and get rid of those things that were in the way from people getting to the place where they could connect to God. Some things to think about. Any questions now? (laughs) Now that I've thrown all this out. Any thoughts or questions on what we've talked about? No? I'm cool with that. Okay. Well, let's pray and then read through John chapter 3 next week. That should be a good discussion. Let's pray. Lord, I think there are times when you need to overturn the tables in our lives, in our hearts, in our ways of thinking. I know you've done it in my life. There's times where I've been so set in my ways and my thoughts that I've made no room for you to act. And more than that, what I have done has excluded people from you. And Lord, you overturn tables still. You move into our hearts and our minds and you reveal the errors of our ways. And and Lord, we make idols out of so many things. Here we see the idolatry in money. Lord, we make idolatry in power, in our religion, our beliefs, in our safety, in our security, in our comfort. We make idols of our families, of our churches. And maybe you need to turn those things over. If we are unwilling to go where you are going because of something else, whatever that something might be, it's an idol. If you are pushing us to a place that is deeper into the world around us, but we are resisting it because of our comfort, 
because of our tradition, then it's a table that needs to be turned over. If we are putting roadblocks between those who don't know you or those who have curious thoughts about you and we are hindering them in any way from hearing from you, then that table needs to be turned over. And it's not something you take lightly. If we want to know what makes you upset, this is what it is. God, I don't want to make you upset. I want to hear what you're saying through this passage. And may I not be a Sadducee. May I not be a person so rigid in my beliefs that I hinder the world around me from hearing your voice. Lord, may we open those gates and may we allow our lives to be the temple of your spirit. May everything that we do be spiritual, be connected to you so that this adventure of life would be walking with you, living in relationship to you, hearing your voice and stepping into crazy and amazing things. Lord, we yield ourselves to you and ask that you would make your voice loud in these areas. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.